We'll never make it back to civilization. We will make it back. The Alaska wilderness, okay, it's vast. But I've already improvised a compass from a belt buckle, some wool, and my own urine, and I've noodled a wild Alaskan catfish for us to eat. But it's hundreds of miles over rough country. Did you know that you can make fire from ice? And seasoned meat with gunpowder? We're all put to the test eventually. Let me tell you something my father said at the end of his days. Why did he say that? He was killed by eagles. We're doomed. Even if we get food or fire, there's still that thing. It already killed Stephen, and now it's stalking us. Always one step ahead of us, as if it knows what we're thinking. <laughs> there it is! It's a man-killer! There are Maasai men who will kill a lion with a wooden spear. There are Inuit boys who run up to a bear and slap it, a form of counting coup. What one man can do, another can do. I'm going to kill the turkey. I'm going to kill the turkey. Say it. I'm going to kill the turkey. 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 Well, that didn't really go so well, but our panelists on The Nose are not afraid as they talk about comedy in scary times on the special Thanksgiving edition of The Nose. And now he almost died in the Alaska wilderness because of all the gluten. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I don't know why I started thinking about the movie The Edge today, but it was actually last night. I thought it would be really funny if instead of a bear it was a turkey. Um, so it really has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, except it's the day before Thanksgiving. It is also the birthday of one of our panelists today, comedian, dancer, actress, dance impresario, all that other stuff. Carolyn Payne is celebrating her birthday today in, in, a, in a, like, I don't know, what is it with your birthday? I don't know. It's just a fail every year. In fact, one year my brother tried to throw me, my brother and a friend tried to throw me a surprise party, and it was, like, such a disaster. They did it at the Spigot which, you know, is lovely, but not the most um, exciting of birthday party locales. And uh, they and like my dentist showed up and my landlord and two ex-boyfriends because he literally just kind of went through my phone. It was just it was awful. So and that was one of the better times because at least somebody acknowledged it. It's just hard when it's like on Thanksgiving or, you know, the day before. It's the proximity to the holiday. Do you? Are you, like, friends with your dentist, or was that the first time you'd ever seen your dentist outside a dental situation? It was the first and only time. I actually yeah. switched dentists after that. Right, yeah, <laughs> and the couldn't. dentist went through your cell phone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had the I had the number. I Well, they had come up a lot. It doesn't matter. I had had a problem with a filling, so that was a last-dialed frequent call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you get a good, lot of good stories out of having a wan and pathetic birthday. So, um, also joining us is James Hanley, co-founder of uh, Cine Studio at Trinity College, Rich Holland, principal and co and design director at Co. Lab. So they're all here with us. We don't usually do the nose on Wednesdays, but heading into the long uh, Thanksgiving weekend and having missed a couple of noses while I was sick, uh, we felt, well, it's time. So one of the things we want to talk uh, about, obviously, the world has changed a little bit since the last time we did any kind of nose at all. Maybe the world has changed a lot uh, since that time. And we want to talk a little bit about how culture responds in these situations. And I do believe that the first responders are usually comedians uh, because they basically – They've got to get ready. They've got the people who are doing daily shows, including The Daily Show, uh, have to have some immediate sense of response. But I want to begin with a moment that actually happened on election night when an extraordinarily polished comedian ordinarily 
kind of stumbled into a very raw moment. Uh, Stephen Colbert had planned to do this uh, election night special, um, and uh, it was called Stephen Colbert's Live Election Night Democracies series finale. Um, and, and like a lot of people, I think he sort of thought he knew what was going to be happening that night. Let's hear a little bit about what did happen. So how did our politics get so poisonous? I think it's because we overdosed, especially this year. We drank too much of the poison. You take a little bit of it so you can hate the other side. And it tastes kind of good. And you like how it feels. And there's a gentle high to the condemnation, right? And you know you're right, right? You know you're right. When I was a kid, we didn't think about politics this much. And that's good that we didn't think about it that much because it left room in our lives for other things and for other people. Politics is a lot of horse race, and horse race is gambling. And gambling is, according to the Bible, a sin because it itself is a poison, Mm. worrying about winning and not what the consequences of winning is. And I think the people who designed our democracy didn't want us in it all the time. Informed, yes. Politicking all the time, I don't think so. Not divided that way. They designed an election that was meant to confuse us and bore us a little bit. That's why the Electoral College exists and (laughs) C-SPAN. But now politics is everywhere, and that takes up precious brain space we could be using to remember all the things we actually have in common. So whether your side won or lost... We don't have to do this for a while. So, so, um, so, Rich Holland, this is kind of, you know, I mean, if you watch a lot of comedy, you don't see moments like this very often. And, and this is a very intelligent man, uh, and he's imagined a very different kind of evening. And there was just this kind of tremendous rawness. And I, I still can't, I've watched this clip more than once, and, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of, see some of what's happening, too, because he's not himself. His eyes are kind of darting to the left and right as if he's almost appealing to who's ever in the wings for, for help. Uh, and um, there was something kind of alarming. I mean, you know, there, there are lots of ways in which we get scared. Watching a comedian get kind of scared, there's, I don't know. So the the amazing part about this this clip, and I had watched the, in, the, entire, the entire part of it, was... Um, Watching Stephen Colbert think on his feet, feel on his feet, and get back to his job. Um, he that that moment of being uh, thrown by the outcome was very fleeting. Um, yeah, I mean, it lasted just a few minutes, and then he was back on task. And um, and to me, that's a message for all of us. Um, I, I think to uh, those Super Bowl, those uh, Super Bowl team uh, manufacturers who have to have both outcomes ready uh, mm-hmm. to just go as soon as uh, as the event is over. Uh, there's something about Colbert that felt like um, he had considered uh, an outcome that wasn't the one that he wanted. Still didn't like it, you know. And I know a number of folks who who were not happy about the outcome and still um, uh, could see it as a feasibility. I think that uh, on SNL there was this great skit um, 
with uh, with Chris Rock and uh, and Dave Chappelle um, that that touched on that uh, the uh, the element of surprise that some people had that just blew them away in in an inability to to respond to the moment and they were like yeah we're not too crazy about the outcome but you could kind of see this coming down the pike right that's a remarkable sketch Saturday Night Live has actually turned a little bit of its comic anger. Not so much on Donald Trump lately, but on uh, people who don't seem to be able to adjust to this. Uh, they did. Uh, they've done a number of skits like this. That one took place uh, supposedly on election night. There's an election night watching party. We don't happen to have that particular clip, but it's an election night watching party of mostly white people. Dave Chappelle, for a while, is the lone person of color in the room, and he's listening to these white people kind of rationalize all the numbers and, and insisting still that they know what's going to happen and that Clinton is going to win. And Chappelle is very dubious and. And eventually Chris Rock joins him. And there is, I I thought, one of the great, you know, darkly comic moments uh, since that election is near the end, one of the uh, white characters sitting on a couch says, this is the most disgraceful thing America has ever done. And Rock and Chappelle look at each other and just start laughing their heads off. Um, and, And I actually thought, that I'm glad that they did that because, yeah. yes, this is a really, you know, for a lot of people, a very alarming moment. But uh, I would imagine from the perspective of a lot of African-Americans, not necessarily that far no. out of the lane that you know. You know, Carolyn, one of the things that was interesting about the Colbert Club, at one point, point, there's five seconds of silence, you know, which, you know, I mean, there are comedians who can do five seconds of silence. And Dave Chappelle actually might be one of them. But it, it's an odd thing, right? I mean, one of the things that you do when you do comedy is you try to keep the roller skates moving somehow, even if you feel like you're losing your balance. Yeah. <laughs> one of the scariest things to have happen on stage is silence. If you kind of lose where you are um, and, and a moment, a second feels when you're on stage, it can feel like 45 seconds, but it was just literally like this half a second. So being somebody who can take that power and harness that um, and and use those moments of silence, which he did very effectively there. And I I do agree with you. I do feel like it was just all that he he kind of didn't have a roadmap that he might have normally had uh, in, in, in saying this. I think that he had several directions and turns that he didn't, he wasn't sure where he was going to be taking things maybe. Um, and I, I think that that is, that's sort of how all of us are, are processing this. And every time, um, every time politics, politics have come up in a conversation for me lately, I've been just trying to avoid it. Um, I'm sort of in a shutdown mode right now. Um, one of the things I do is I do freelance comedy writing and I create like memes and stuff for various clickbaits. And, you know, I'm getting these sent these assignments and I, I, I'm turning down work, which is ludicrous. <laughs> in the gig economy. <laughs> yeah, in, in this economy, in my economy, in my current state. Uh, but it's, it's just not knowing how or where to go with something. I'm not sure. I, it all still seems I, I just feel like blindsided still. In so many ways, and I, you don't know what to approach things with. And there are some things that you can find comedy. And one of the things that I have been finding brilliant again is on SNL, uh, Kate McKinnon's character of Kellyanne Conway, just being totally 
you know, when she walks into the room, he says, can I get you something, Kellyanne? You know, the Trump voice, I can't even do it. And she's just like a time machine. Yes. <laughs> you know, is there something on your on your shoulder? She's like, all of this. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is brilliant to take characters like that and find that, you know, make that, find the humor there. Um, and I, I think Samantha B has done, she's sort of been my my guiding light and somebody that I've really enjoyed watching process this. We've got a clip of her. We'll play that in just a second. Uh, James, you know, after 9-11, Graydon Carter famously said, you know, humor is dead. Comedy is dead. It was a long time before people could joke. I mean, I don't know how long a long time actually is, but it was. uh, Now, this is different, right? I mean, we didn't have 3,000 people get killed by terrorists. We had election results. But I know you're sort of struggling with this question, whether any of this stuff can be made funny. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think to – I mean, the basis of comedy really is kind of reactive. And we went through a campaign that um, really was uh, a mirage in many ways. A lot of things that should have been discussed weren't and a lot of hidden issues that should have been brought out. Um, I mean, what you were saying about Chris Rock and and Dave Chappelle, I mean, it it made you realize how totally – out of reality, the election campaign was. And so comedy doesn't really have anything at the moment to do other than sort of like react to a, a kind of a, a mirage, really, like like behavior, for example, which feeds into the people. I mean, it, it, my unease, I, I should say, really, is like the practicalities of like somebody – um, who is a, a, a pretty clearly a racist being becoming a uh, the the attorney general for example mm-hmm. somebody will have real influence over people's lives and sentencing in court and who gets prosecuted and what happens with all the information that the government is being is gathering you know these have real consequences all of this but but it's very hard in a comedic sense, to react to that and to make any kind of a joke about it. That's where my unease is, is that, that, you know, um, uh, when I was listening to the um, uh, podcast you sent around, the Malcolm Gladwell, there was one point at which um, uh, a researcher was talking about how in doing some research about the attitude to Stephen Colbert's character on his original show, found that Many people, lots of people on the right thought he was really lampooning the left and vice versa. Mm. And so I could see that although he didn't actually directly say that, I could see that that was a reason why he didn't want to do that character anymore because it's a kind of illusion again that, that you're, you're – and, and that's a sort of danger for comedy to me. It's like if you have um, comedy really react to the most trivial parts, which is like for instance – I. Frankly, I can't watch Alec Baldwin doing uh, uh, doing Trump. I, it it drives me crazy. I I just turn it away. I turn it off. I can't stand it because essentially what it's doing is playing off something that is incredibly dangerous and that has not been discussed in substance in terms of what are these people going to do? They are going to have the capability of starting wars. They have commercial entanglements that could easily trigger wars. The, what about you know transgender youth, for example? What an incredible despair in the face of you know just coming to a point where society seemed to be getting past this issue of trying to tell people which bathroom they should use. Now all of a sudden, this is like endangered. I mean, those are the things that I just can't. 
I don't know. I just can't well, laugh. Comedy it's, always helps people deal with fear and rage and sadness because and and it's oftentimes not at this kind of level. Like comedy comedians, like I know. Mm. You know, when I work on something and have something in, in my material and people come up to me and they're like, oh, my God, when you said that, I relate to that so strongly. It made me feel less yeah. weird. And and that and comedy is helping helps people cope and helps people realize that their experience isn't very isn't so singular. Um, but this is something where it's different because this is such such huge fear, such huge rage and such you know, so many emotions that it's, it's hard it's about, to... Yes, so, exactly. It's about daily life. It's about daily life for real people. Right. So, so um, I'm glad you brought up Alec Baldwin um, and and the con- the content that you were... Uh, the context that you were looking at this under, um, Caroline. Here's been my experience with this. Uh, prior to the election, um, I thought Alec Baldwin was hilarious. Um, I was watching his takes on the debates, et cetera, and, and I was having field day with it. Um, in the back of my mind, I also had predicted an outcome, right? I, I completed the yeah. script and, and I envisioned the context uh, that, this, that this portrayal was going to be nested in in a couple of weeks. Um, <clears throat> when I take a look at the, the last uh, iteration uh, of, the, of the Alec Baldwin uh, Trump character, I had a little bit of a panic in that um, what I saw was um, Alec Baldwin's character, Alec Baldwin's version of Donald Trump was kind of likable. You know, I I'm liked a, just, him. Just to put it in perspective, I think you're talking about uh, a skit that ran this past Saturday where yes. uh, Trump is in fact trying to fulfill some of his promises or being reminded <laughs> of some of his promises. And it turns out he has no idea how to do any of them. Uh, he's shown using a laptop, which, by the way, to try to look up the, I, things like ISIS it, yeah, on Google. On a, yeah. but, Siri, how do I kill ISIS? Yeah. By the way, just for the record, neither candidate in this election, neither Hillary Clinton nor uh, Donald Trump knows how to use a laptop or right. any kind of personal computer. But anyway, and so likable in the sense anyway that he just really hadn't thought any of this stuff through. Right. And now he's like just, you know, he he's the dog who caught up with the mail truck. Exactly. And doesn't know what to do with it. And so, you know, it's not that you want to run out and hug the guy, but there's uh, – there's a piece of what Baldwin brings to it, what Baldwin's training wants to bring to it, is to, uh, is to make the character fuller. And there's an element of, of, of looking at this as a fuller character that I find dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, um, let's hear a little bit. Uh, you, Carolyn mentioned Samantha Bee. The, um, this is uh, a, a performer who's not afraid to show her anger at certain times and hasn't been afraid to do that during this campaign or in its aftermath. Let's hear a little bit of her from right after the election. In the coming days, people will be looking for someone to blame the polls. The strident feminists, the Democratic Party, a vengeful God. But once you dust for fingerprints, it's pretty clear who ruined America. White people. I guess ruining Brooklyn was just a dry run. The... Caucasian nation showed up in droves to vote for Trump. So I don't want to hear a goddamn word about black voter turnout. How many times do we expect black people to build our country for us? White people, this is the worst thing we've ever... No, I'm sorry, that's a very high bar, but holy sh! And don't try to distance yourself from the bad apples and say, it's not my fault, I didn't vote for him. Hashtag not all white people. Shush, shush, shush. If Muslims have to take responsibility for every member of their community, so do we. Oh, that does 
fall. Yeah. 63% of white men said, if I can't be in charge, burn it down, which surprised exactly no one. And a majority of white women faced with the historic choice between the first female president and a vial of weaponized testosterone said, I'll take option B. I just don't like her. Oh, hope you got your sticker, ladies. Way to lean out. And, uh, you know, James, you know, to, to, to your earlier point, I actually do th- feel as though humor... Humor can happen almost anywhere. It can happen almost in, under any circumstances. And you have satire in Pinochet's Chile, you know, where there's a lot on the line. Um, and, and you you have uh, satire. And I also feel as though sometimes the introduction of angry ideas uh, in a comic context can be a, a real wake-up call to people. I, I even think of the first time – if you can think back to the first time you saw Richard Pryor, you know, no – black comedian had ever talked that way, not in, you know, not to a general audience before, just listening to the amount of anger that he had about certain things. It was was a huge wake-up call to people. I actually feel in a lot of these bad and repressive situations, you know, comedy is what often speaks truth to power. Well, I agree. If there's, if it's satire with teeth and people who really have uh, act with the, their convictions, and Richard Pryor was a perfect example of that. He didn't care. He was going to come out with it and 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 confront. And I think Samantha Bee does the same thing. I mean, I, mean, I think that she's fortunate that she's in a position where she can do that. Um, uh, but I think that um, if you, there are lots of comedians who really actually are part of a sort of mainstream kind of thing to me, that, that they're not really satirists. A real satirist is somebody who is, um, who's willing to take the risks of real confrontation. And some of the uh, – some, some comedy is, is capable of doing that and then just walking away from it and leaving it there and leaving the damage that it's done so that it can't be used – by somebody who's been satirized to actually advance their cause, which is happening with a lot of comedic approaches to the people around Trump and his whole gang. It actually gives them fuel to use, and then it is no longer satire to me. And I think that's a distinction we've lost. People don't really understand what real satire is. It's partly history, ignorance of history. It's ignorance of the reality of you know, we've got generations of people who've seen the arc of social project progress go in a direction of inclusion, a direction of understanding, a direction of trying to fix things that are wrong. And it's not been a common experience to actually see, for the general populace at least, but also some very specific parts, it hasn't been possible to imagine the idea of the arc bending the other way, even if it's just for a while. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's a really serious matter that if you take it on, you have to mean it and you have to know how to do it. And and that's, Carolyn, to to that point, not every comedian does sign up for that, right? I mean, there are people like John Oliver who clearly have decided that explanatory journalism is actually part of his job. Um, And, and, you know, and he does that week after week. There's actually a Pulitzer Prize in explanatory journalism. I think John Oliver should be nominated for it at some point because a lot of times he takes very complicated issues, you know, really takes 13 minutes to explain exactly how the whole thing works. But for a lot of people who work in comedy, it it is, and this goes back to, there was this Malcolm uh, Gladwell podcast that we all listened to where he was very critical of the role of American political satire. And one of his big criticisms was the laugh comes first and, and, and whatever else comes with it comes later. But in some ways, if you're not John Oliver and you're not Richard Pryor, I mean, a lot of comedians 
because this is the thing they've been making all their lives, don't necessarily know how to make comedy a different way. Yeah. I I mean, again, it's like what I was saying earlier that it, this when you're trying to process this and it's an emo- on an emotional level for you and then trying to figure out how to put something out there that is going to land and be able to stick and that your convictions are behind and that you know you are comfortable with. I think it's a really you find yourself thinking about everything a lot more carefully. I know I have that, you know, just like I said, even on just a small scale in being asked to create, you know, satirical posts and things like that, that I normally do all the time with new stuff for things. um, It shocked me to just find myself kind of going like radio silent on on these issues because uh, there are I, I think SNL is struggling with how to deal with things in in a way that we haven't seen in a while, and uh, I, I think that it is for for me. It's been a really interesting thing to like kind of watch, and uh, I have a lot of friends in comedy who are choosing to not even go into uh, po- like into politics right now in their material, which I think is an interest again an interesting thing. So we're going to need to go to a break right now. Hold your thought, Rich Holland. Uh, as we go out to break, you're going to hear Amine uh, performing Caroline uh, with a new last verse on the Tonight Show on November fifteenth. Baby, I want forever, Caroline. Don't you see that? I want you to be mine. 9-11, a day that we never forgetting. 11-9, a day that we all regretting. If my president is Trump, then it's relevant enough to talk better on TV and not give up. I'm black and I'm proud. My skin is brown and I'm loud. Everybody love it when a rapper tells some lies. Well, that ain't me, homie. I guess that's a surprise. America want to act all happy and holy. But deep down inside, they like Brad and Jolie. Caroline Divine and I won't get specific. Club Banana the Illis and it's too terrific. You can never make America great again. All you ever did was make this country hate again. And we're back. Uh, this is The Nose. And in the studio, birthday girl Carolyn Payne. Uh, if you see Carolyn Payne today, do some very special birthday thing for her, but not something that would frighten her. Um, <laughs> and like like saying, yelling hello to her from your car, which I did one time. <laughs> she thought I was some kind of bad person. I didn't know it was him, and I called him a creep. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, but what happened was I said hello to her from my car, and then we were at the same event later. It was Kion's birthday party. And she said, yeah, some creep was yelling at me from his car on the street. I said, well, that was me, actually. Uh, <laughs> saying hi. Um, uh, anyway, I wish her a happy birthday. James Hanley from Trinity Cine Studio, uh, Rich Holland uh, from CoLab. Uh, and so um, when we did listen to this Malcolm Gladwell podcast from uh, something called Revisionist History. Is that what it's called? I think so. Uh, and he talked about sort of the role of satire. And one of the things that he criticized was the way in which Saturday Night Live, uh, once again, going for laughs and also trying to keep everybody happy. Uh, normalizes some of these uh, people. Obviously, Donald Trump was allowed to host Saturday Night Live uh, earlier in this election cycle. Um, he was talking very specifically about uh, the time that, uh, that Sarah Palin appeared 
uh, alongside Tina Fey, uh, a lot of things were done with that. In fact, Alec Baldwin had a backstage scene where he's berating Lauren Michaels for letting Sarah Palin on with our beautiful Tina Fey. He keeps pointing to the woman next to her, saying that horrible woman is going to be on with our beautiful Tina. And of course, it is Sarah Palin. It's not Tina Fey. Ha ha ha. So anyway, um, Chuck Todd, because NBC has this incredible vertical monopoly where they have like the comedy and the news and the Access Hollywood and the Today Show and Matt Lauer. Um, uh, Chuck Todd was interviewing Seth Meyers here about that phenomenon, about working with the actual politicians. Is it awkward? Do you tiptoe around somebody that you've been rough on? You know, over the years at the Update Desk, I got to do stuff with Chris Christie and Mike Huckabee and Rudy Giuliani. And, and I do think it's really nice when two people who maybe don't agree on everything can uh, come together for the purposes of a good time. So the presidential candidates you had on this year, and you picked quite a few, Hillary Clinton, Cruz, Sanders, Kasich, Graham, Carly Fiorina, former President Clinton you've had, you've had Vice President Biden, Sarah Palin. Who's, who was the most fun interview? Uh, I really, well, Bernie both times is a fun guy to talk to. Ted Cruz was the one I enjoyed the most. Ted Cruz... Did that surprise you? Yeah. And you can tell he comes from... Uh, a debate background. He is not, he does not stick to script. Mm -hmm. You don't feel like he comes with canned lines. He was very willing to, uh, I feel honestly, answer my questions in a way that other people, you know, the great disappointment, and I'm sure you find it on this show all the time, mm -hmm. people use these moments on television to just find their way to a stump speech that they're used to delivering on stage. And these are different means of communication. And so when somebody like Ted came on, uh, you know, Senator Cruz, to me, understood he was on late night television, understood that he was maybe a bit of an away game for him. And I found him to be a incredibly good sport. So, Rich, uh, elsewhere in that interview, he talks about the Sarah Palin appearance on SNL. And he, he actually says the line, we, we tried to take good care of her. You know, we thought we took good care of her. We think she had a good experience. Um, and, you know, it's kind of proving Gladwell's point, right, that yeah. a lot of this – anyway, I'll let you elaborate on that. Well, yeah, because – so what I, what I heard in that is that, um, that in the, the context of putting on a show, uh, we get to uh, bypass what a person is saying uh, in, in favor of how they're saying it. And that's, that's kind of what I heard embedded in his statement about Ted Cruz – um, that's like, well, he was off script and, you know, and here's all these positive things that we could say about Cruz. When you listen to the guy's statements um, uh, outside of how they're being delivered, uh, they're alarming statements nonetheless. Um, so uh, – and it gets back to, to, to this kind of core concern. What is it – you know, what about the content? You know, how can we stay focused on the content of what we're talking about? And when I – even as I think about um, comedy uh, trying to produce that on a daily basis um, and the, the rush of content that we've got to do something with, there, there are flaws. Like there was, um, there was a, uh, a – um, that, that whale that showed up in the Hudson River – uh, recently, I don't know if you folks have been following that, um, but immediately that turned into Chris Christie jokes, right? And and I'm concerned about that uh, because the content of around Christie isn't how big the guy is. You know, the concern about Chris Christie is the stuff that Chris Christie does and he stands for. And when we end up focusing on how big Chris 
uh, Chris Christie is, what we inevitably become is the thing that we're criticizing. Exactly right. And, and we can do better than that. Although I feel as though, James, culture is kind of damned either way. So over the weekend, we had obviously this notorious example of the cast of Hamilton striding to the front of the stage to address Mike Pence in the audience. And, you know, in the three or four days that followed from there, uh, I think America did achieve consensus around one thing. Oddly enough, it was that this was sort of a BS story, that in fact it was happening at a time where other much more important things were happening. Uh, Donald Trump was having to settle a fraud lawsuit for $25 million. Uh, there were lots of other things going on having to do with Donald Trump's incredible octopo- octopodon web of business relationships in places like Turkey and Argentina, and that we were all talking about Hamilton. But And, and it, I, there was this, almost this scorn for that for that as a story and you sort of wonder whether well are you sort of saying you don't want culture to say meaningful things about all this because i thought what they said actually was pretty meaningful i agree i think it was meaningful but you have to look at the context i mean given an opportunity most of the media will go with celebrity and will go with sensation and will go without actually having any kind of sense of irony or any sense of talking about content. I mean, it's like going back to this thing about Chris Christie and being being a, a big guy and the whale and 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 uh, letting people. I mean, it's extraordinary to me to hear the statement that well, uh, Ted Cruz was really amazing, you know. Because <laughs> uh, excuse me, you know, did you have any kind of a conversation with what he espouses on re- to affect real people's lives? Uh, I, you know, it and so. In the context of of the way that media treats this, it makes it possible for the very perpetrators of some of the worst and poorly thought out ideas Mm -hmm. to actually get away with throwing something out there and it becomes something that, okay, uh, we've thrown it out there, but it doesn't get discussed. It doesn't get actually confronted. And so what it becomes is actually the entire five, six days of this event, of the of, of the Hamilton incident and all of the other things that went on, what actually substantive actually got discussed, or for that matter, what comedian actually took a slashing satire at it and actually engaged it. And so we haven't moved on from this. We've actually managed to get uh, a, 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 another image in the press of, 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 of uh, out-of-control Trump tweeting and um, Pence, who has some of the most toxic ideas on the planet about personal lives, including mine as being a gay man, he gets away with a patrician walked up the aisle and tells people on TV, oh, I didn't mind. Um, You know, where was the discussion about substance? That's what makes me angry about this and the feeling that you can't get to a point where you're actually feeling that the, 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 the... Something serious and dramatic has happened that is going to affect real people's lives, and we need to talk about that. Although, yeah, did you have something? No, I was just going to add, and and I think you 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 just nailed this thing that was that has been bugging me about the entire Hamilton thing. It it matters, you know, what happened, what what the transaction that took place there is significant, and it's as significant as you know as a twenty five million dollars settlement because what came out of that is this man reinforcing you know, his conviction that there is only one truth that's allowed to be stated and it's the truth that supports anything that he does and that all else needs to be squelched, that there is a First Amendment consideration there that actually is significant. And along with that, there's uh, this statement that Pence made 
that you know that what ends up getting reported about that in contrast to you know to to what tr- the abominable stuff that Trump makes is that this guy seems now much like what Seth uh, Myers was talking about, like a sensible human being exactly. that can be that has reason. I mean, it took him 36 hours to come up with a sensible, reasonable <laughs> statement. Nevertheless, you know, but um, but we're losing touch with the, we're starting to normalize exactly. uh, these these people who have monstrous intentions. Right, and and uh, to go along with that, one of the interesting sub themes of this whole past five or six days over this is look at the pictures in the press of the people involved. The the Pence, for example, just take one example that Pence is – I swear that he has to have a publicist who's putting out these pictures that, you know, they can't get pictures themselves. So they're putting out these pictures. So he's being presented as Mr. Sane, as Mr. Considered, as Mr. Cool in the face of uh, wicked insults by people who would actually say that he's not this presidential character, this vice presidential character. And nothing character. they said was insulting. Exactly. It was, you know, it was more just an expression of, you know, we are concerned and we hope that you, it's a reasonable you hear our expression. concern. Exactly. And and as some people pointed out, you know, the, in in the face of the ridiculous statement that you go to the theater for some kind of insulation ah. from real life, what total complete nonsense! Theater is like like especially has, Hamilton. Like, what was he? <laughs> has anybody been to a Dario Fo play? Recently, well, it's also worth mentioning that Richard Nelson, this uh, amazing playwright who works out of the public, the same place that gave birth to Hamilton, uh, has been writing plays, two sets of plays now, about families dealing with contemporary political moments. And in fact, usually the opening night of the play uh, is um, the time to be the moment in history that's happening. So he opened his latest. Uh, iteration. It's, they're now, it's now the Gabriel family. Uh, he opened that play on election night and was writing right up to curtain, rewriting right up to curtain. But still, as the play um, opened at the public on election night, everybody in the Gabriel family thought that Hillary Clinton had won. <laughs> and it will now be performed that way for as long as it's performed. A bunch of people on election night thinking that Hillary Clinton has, had won. But that's sort of an amazing use of theater. I mean, you sort of think, well, theater couldn't possibly react that quickly. Well, Nelson and the public have really tried to make it do that. You know, before we run out of time, I do want to bring up one thing, which is I, I maybe you guys don't agree with this, but I feel as though in some ways we are living in a very important age of satire. I think about my entire life. A lot of this, Carolyn, happened uh, many years before you were born on November 23rd. Um, but, you know, growing up, I mean, late night comedy was mainly Johnny Carson, you know, who really was not interested in disturbing the order of things. There was uh, there was always somebody like Dick Cavett who was doing really significant, biting, substantive stuff. Uh, there were people like the Smothers Brothers who occasionally tried to get um, some kind of satirical content onto the air, but often at their peril and often bumping into to, uh, to network censors. And, and, you know, in some ways, I think a pivotal moment was, was actually David Letterman. Not that he was political, but he basically said, you know what, we don't have to accord any particular level of respect to any of this stuff. Any of it, politics, whatever, it's not that good. And, and there is this clip that Clinton used as a commercial where uh, Trump is a guest. He's just Donald Trump back in those days on The Letterman Show. And Letterman is going through all this Trump merchandise and asking him where it's made. And he doesn't know. And Trump says China. And, you know, I mean, uh, Letterman says China. He walks him through the fact that all of his merchandise is being made in other countries. Um, and, and, you know, now we've kind of arrived at the point where these people like John Stewart and John Oliver and Samantha Bee 
and, and Trevor Noah, who, by the way, has been getting better uh, in the job, are doing explanatory journalism of a kind that was just never contemplated. You know, I mean, Samantha B. if you're not keeping up with the cabinet picks, she walks you through them all and tells you who's handling the transition for EPA and stuff like that. I actually think there are people doing work right now that's unprecedented in the history of American comedy. But those people are also keeping the pressure on. Mm-hmm. Um, that there that there are some aspects of of comedy that takes the pressure off, and uh, and we need to be mindful of that. Um, and uh, I don't know about the rest of you folks, but I'm not relaxing right now. Um, <laughs> right. Everybody yeah. is yeah. is making the statement that you know I give the guy a shot. What I'm seeing right now is that there is a system that is being organized right now, That's and if right. we're not being organized as well, we're behind the curve. So, you know, so I so I'm listening to the comedy, but also trying to stay focused Right, and pay attention to the fact that there are things like a neo-Nazi rally in a Mm -hmm. public building steps away from the White House. Um, To that end, to that idea of being vigilant, we're going to end with a clip. Uh, This is a clip that just kind of became available in the last couple of days. Uh, John Oliver and Stephen Colbert did an onstage conversation at the Montclair, New Jersey Film Festival. The only reason that this happened was that uh, Stephen Colbert's wife, I think, is the president of that film festival. It wasn't really available to the public. It was just for, you know, for the invited guests or, you know, film festival pass holders or whatever. Uh, But we do have a little clip of the two of them talking. Uh, they're, They're getting a question from the audience about sort of, to put it another way, how screwed are we right now? How are we? Wow. Well, every president tries to achieve what they promised. Yeah. Oh, Every president, usually there's some, here's the thing. Every president tries to achieve what they promise. And you can say, well, there are the levers and powers in Washington that could possibly slow him down. But two things. One is they're cowards. Second is that the levers in Washington are apparently merely attached to blinking red lights that make the people happy when they pull. Because they tried to stop Trump. Everybody tried to stop Trump. Do not delude yourself. Everyone except the people he's going to appoint tried to stop him. And they didn't. He owes them nothing. And that's what scares me, is that he owes the checks and balances of Washington nothing. Because they tried to stop him and they couldn't. And he's a vindictive person. So it's all going to be fine. (laughs) Okay, you can survive Thanksgiving with your family. It is possible to compound a makeshift version of Xanax from cranberry sauce, napkin threads, and the tears of a Republican. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPilgrim Pants and me, Kyone Wolf. Executive producer Katie Talarski appeared in the intro, and our intern is Squanto Fisher. Part of Bill Curry was played by Benjamin Franklin. Keep up with the news of the show on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble. Happy Thanksgiving. And now, back to Colin. And back to the news. It's time for us. See, we've kind of probably depressed you a little bit, um, or maybe even a lot. Um, during the show, it's time for us to make some recommendations uh, to uh, for things that will uh, make you happy. Uh, it's Carolyn Payne's birthday today, and uh, she always gets trapped sort of halfway between the Kennedy assassination and Thanksgiving Day. So there's uh, very few little baubles offered. So we ought to be trying to make Ka- Carolyn Payne happy. But instead, <laughs> because you're a comedian, yeah. make everybody else happy. I will try. Um, okay, so obviously I'm going to self 
promote my Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy coming up at the Wadsworth Athenaeum December 9th through 11th. You can get tickets at kineticdance.com. And you should go because it's a really great holiday show and it's filled with diversity and it's something we all just need something that feels good and is fun. I can sort of cross-endorse this because I've been to it and I intend to go to it again. It is a lot of fun. There isn't anything quite like it probably anyplace else. So if you want to feel like you're living in Hartford or in central Connecticut uh, and there are special things about it, this is a pretty good example of a special thing. Uh, We're lucky to have it here, so you ought to try it out. And it's just really fun, too. Thanks. It's not your grandmother's nutcracker. It is not at all. Yeah. So uh, definitely, please, and thank you, Colin. Come see that. Uh, Two, I want to endorse, since we were talking about comedy, I actually just read uh, Judd Apatow wrote a book that is a group of, it's it's transcribed interviews that he's done with comedians uh, over, I I think, like a 20-year span. Um, It has everyone from, like, Eric Idle to uh, Stephen Colbert, and it it is just – it is brilliant. Um, It is called Sick in the Head, and it's really great, and it uh, shows you – it gives you these really neat glimpses into comedians that you know and love. And my third endorsement is the the show Search Party on TBS. I just started watching this. I binged it all last night. It, it has okay. Well, I, I watched about three episodes last night, and how and did I, you stop after three? This is the first thing that I have like needed to binge in a long time. Like I started and literally just stayed up to finish it. Uh, it, it stars this the remarkable young woman who played Maybe on Arrested Development. I don't know her name. She has kind of an Arabic sounding name, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, it's an odd thing because its its tone is kind of non. Well, I described it as rich, to Rich earlier as like HBO's Girls meets Gone Girl, the film Gone Girl. Yeah, that's about right. That's yeah. about yeah. All right. All right. So, James, what have you got to endorse? Well, actually, I would endorse uh, Carolyn's Nutcracker, too. I think it's great. Um, and one other thing, uh, well, two other quick things. One is uh, if people look up the British comedian Peter Cook um, <laughs> and listen to some of his political satire, which skewered uh, a lot of things in England and a lot of things about British society, um, it's a real education about what it means to be really incisive and have some real teeth in satire. And he really didn't care what he said. And it's very, very sharp. And the other thing is another kind of sharpness. Um, the, we're showing at Sydney Studio at 2.30 on Sunday, The Curious World of Hieronymus Bosch, um, which is kind of, I guess, appropriate timing yes. as well. <laughs> but 2.30 on Sunday at City Studio. All right. Uh, I, I would also cross-endorse Peter Cook and maybe even Derek and Clive, the really forbidden version of Peter Cook and Derek Moore. <laughs> so, so I've got two, uh, two endorsements this week. Uh, one is uh, in the spirit of stepping out of my bubble and seeing how the rest of the world works. This, uh, this Caribbean Haitian kid is going to talk about ice skating. Um, a thing that uh, that I promised that I wouldn't be caught dead doing. Um, I'm seriously considering right now. Uh, Winterfest ice skating is now open up um, uh, in Bushnell Park. Uh, Friday, for example, eleven to eight. Uh, and if you jump on the website uh, Hartford.com/slash/Winterfest, uh, you'll learn about uh, skating lessons and all kinds of other cool things. And I promise, I'm going to actually do this. And uh, my other endorsement is um, is, uh, to go visit uh, EBK Gallery at 1429 Park Street. Uh, uh, The the owner, Eric Benkiki, has created a series of – a bunch of buttons, a ton of them, little tiny white buttons with a tiny little black Helvetica type that reads Descent in the middle of it. It's sort of like the generic food uh, packaging of of, of – cultural uh, anarchy. 
uh, go get yourself a button. He'll give them to you and wear them and remember. All right. Uh, it's a good uh, design director recommendation uh, if there ever was one. Um, so I'm going to re- endorse – yeah, i got time to endorse two things. Um, one of them is – this is sort of a pedestrian one. But you know how sort of you have to bring like a lot of wine somewhere? Uh, and so I discovered this thing uh, called the Chateau Barad wine box. This is a French wine, a very pretty good French wine. And instead of like the cardboard box and stuff like that, they actually have packaged it in that kind of wooden box that uh, French wines are shipped around in. That, well, I don't know what wood that is. It's a very lightweight, light-colored wood. Uh, and so it's boxed that way, uh, and it seals up really well, too, so that you get repeated use out of it. But you feel a little less, I don't know, déclassé or whatever, you know, than you would showing up. I love that you're of... trying to justify that you're endorsing boxed wine right yeah, now. Can right. we all just let that? <laughs> <laughs> it just puts a different face on it somehow. So anyway, Chateau Barad, B-A-R-A-D-E. I got it at the Wise Old Dog in West Hartford, where I get a lot of things. I don't know where else you can find it, but you can ask to see if your local person has it. And then um, I guess I'm going to do a shameless plug, too, except I want to do it also because it's absolutely free, and we've kind of underpublicized it so far. John Meacham, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer uh, of Thomas Jefferson, uh, George H.W. Bush, and Andrew Jackson, uh, is going to be in Hartford on November 30th, a Wednesday night at Infinity Hall. He and I will be on stage having a conversation. Obviously, a lot of what we've been talking about here in America is going to be very interesting to run through the filter of John Meacham's understanding of history. I suppose Andrew Jackson in particular will be on the table that night. Uh, Anyway, he and I will be having that conversation. It's part of a a thing called the Chatfield series, which is sponsored by Richard Plepler, the head of HBO. Uh, And um, it's absolutely free. I think you have to call Watkinson School in order to make a reservation. Uh, so if you call Watkins in school, you have to make a reservation to go, but it doesn't cost a nickel. You just go down to Infinity Hall and you plop yourself in a seat, and uh, I will try to make sure that uh, I do a good job uh, making sure you get to hear things that, re- that John Meacham has to say. I think it's a really nice opportunity. Uh, and uh, also, if you've never been to Infinity Hall in Hartford, that's like a really nice place to go anyway, too. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. Special thanks to our panel, birthday girl Carolyn Payne, uh, James Hanley, and Rich Holland. Uh, and, and thanks to everybody who works on this show. You're all great. Betsy Kaplan just got back from Australia. We're so excited about that. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McNichol, Josh Nilea, and, of course, to Kyone Wolf. And the rest of you, have a happy, happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you on the radio. Donald Trump thinks SNL is doing a hit job on him. Clearly, he didn't remember the abusive culture around Toonsis the Driving Cat. On a possibly unrelated note, Toonsis 2020.